Well, good morning, everyone. I guess there's two people, Chuck and uh, I don't know if it's Riley over there. Everybody else is like, man, this guy. Uh, no, uh, we are so glad that you guys are hey, here. Uh, if you're new or visiting Christ Bible Church, uh, welcome. My name is Randy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the great honor of helping us uh, to work through the book of 2 Timothy as we continue preaching. Uh, we'll be looking at verses 14 to 26 uh, together this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up, uh, open them up and uh, let us read the Word of God uh, together. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. And as we hear your word, Lord, we respond and we give you thanks. Lord, for we know that through your word, you sustain us, you encourage us. And Lord, as we look at this uh, command from the apostle Paul to his friend, to his protege, Timothy, to be a good worker, to be a useful vessel, Lord, we pray that indeed you would be making us into useful vessels. We want to be useful to you, our Lord, our master. And so we pray that you would use your word this morning to help us, to equip us, to purify us, that we might walk and live not just for you, but through you. And so we ask that you would equip us, that you would strengthen us, that you would teach us through your word and through the power of the spirit as we gather this morning. Amen. I want to start with a confession this morning. If you want directions to somewhere, don't ask me. I am notoriously bad at directions. There's many examples uh, in my life of this. If you were to ask my wife what's like one of the top five most frustrating things about Randy, it's probably how often I get lost or have no clue where I'm going. Uh, 
So this week, as I thought, you know, what are some examples of this as we dive in and we look at this passage this morning, and one in particular stood out. I was heading uh, back home from college. I went to college in this little town in Kansas called Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, It was a mistake. Phoenix is great. Kansas is either hot and humid or freezing cold, uh, and it's dark all the time. And the problem for me is I was heading back home, and I was driving at night as I usually tried to start my drive home. It's a 16-hour drive at night, so when I was the most alert was at night, and then when it was daytime, I could start to doze off while driving. No, no, just it's not a good thing, no. <laughs> right? But we would drive at night. Uh, but the problem with this is on the way home through Kansas took a long time, about six hours, till I hit a major interstate. All kinds of little two-lane highways that you have to dodge in and out. And to make matters worth, worse, Google Maps didn't exist. I had in my car an atlas. Some of you, if you're uh, not yet in your 30s, because uh, that means you've had a smartphone your whole life, you don't know what a road atlas is. It's this wonderful book that helps you get across America. And so I would have to take out my atlas and map my track home and figure out how am I going to get from Kansas all the way till I can hit uh, I-40 in New Mexico and then cut across New Mexico and get to uh, Flagstaff, and then it was free sailing from then. But the problem was, as I was driving at night, and again, Kansas, they don't believe in streetlights, so there's no lights anywhere, it's dark, there's little tiny roads, and as I was driving, I passed into a town that I had never heard of before. Now, this is a problem, because I had made this trip many times, right? And this meant, at that moment, I had a dumb and dumber moment, and I had driven hours in the wrong direction. And I had to pull over in the middle of the night, my stomach dropped, and flip through my atlas to figure out where in America I even was uh, as I was trying to make my way home. Why do I share this story about my mishaps and foolishness driving? Well, what Paul seems to be concerned about as he's writing to Timothy here is that he indeed is a useful vessel. And in this, we have this command for him to make straight paths. And so he's imploring his friend, his protege, his wonderful uh, careful person that he's equipped and done so much for to teach and preach in this church in Ephesus to be somebody who gives good directions, who maps out straight paths for the people. Because the problem was there's other people who have been mapping out not so straight paths. And so Timothy must lead these people towards the straight path of the gospel. Everything in Timothy's teaching and life should be that he cuts paths paves good roads for those that he teaches to follow, that they might press forward day after day towards Christ. And so as the Apostle Paul continues to write and encourage his dear friend Timothy here, he's going to offer wisdom in this section, both of how Timothy should conduct himself in how he teaches and how he lives, that he might indeed be a useful vessel that's mentioned in verses 20 and 21. And so we start with the beginning. In verse 14, before Timothy uh, does anything, before Paul's going to instruct him, he says, what? Timothy, remind them of these things. And so we pause and ask, what are these things? He doesn't say remind them uh, to do X, Y, Z. Remind them these things. It requires us to look backwards a little bit and see what has Paul been talking about? What is it that Paul is asking Timothy to remind those that are around him of? Namely, this is verse 8, that 
Jesus Christ rose from the grave, the gospel that Timothy teaches. If Timothy is going to be a godly preacher and teacher, if he's going to be a useful vessel to the master, he must start by keeping the focus on God. He must remind them of the gospel that Paul had taught him and handed down. And although this is a simple passing phrase, as the whole section begins to flow out of it, it really is a matter of first importance. Everything that flows from the rest of this section should find its roots here. The quarreling, the right handling of God's word, irreverent babble, godly living, all find themselves back in first things. What is the first things? The gospel. We have mentioned this over and over as we've worked through 2 Timothy, but the fact that this letter shows it's so important for Timothy to keep the gospel central to his life shows us of how important it is to us today. We have to always keep Christ in front of us. It's so easy to let our eyes drift in this life, but when they do, it's natural that everything else drifts as well. I know none of you ever text while driving, but when you witness somebody else doing it, what happens? The car begins to swerve. They've taken their eyes off the road, and even though they're driving in the direction that they know they need to be driving, they find themselves in the median or someplace else, uh, and bad things can happen. It's clear that Paul wants to keep Timothy from a similar fate. If Timothy is going to be an effective preacher, teacher, elder of his church, he must, above all else, keep the message of Jesus in front of the people. This is no small task. It's so easy to take scripture and go straight to the morality of it, or the leadership principles, or the history. These are all good things and worthy of our study, worthy of us to think about them, but they should never become the focus of our pursuit. Greater love of Jesus should drive everything else that flows from that, including greater obedience to his commands. If our pursuit is something good, but it's not Christ, it's a diversion from the path. One way we can combat this tendency, even as we read scripture, is to make it part of our routine when we sit down, we ask first and foremost, what is this driving me to in Jesus? How does this call me to a greater love of him or knowledge of him, dependence on them? How does this reveal who he is and what he's done in a greater capacity? That way, Christ is the focus always. It's easy for us even this morning to read this passage and leave saying, here's what I need to do. But if we've done that, we've missed these very first words. Remind them of these things. Keep Jesus in the front of everything we do and all we pursue. But he comes on and Paul writes, and Timothy is instructed, not just remind them of these things, but what? Charge them before God. What the heck does this mean? Charge them before God? Robert Yarbrough in his commentary notes that this means simply that Timothy should be keenly aware of the gravity of his responsibility. God is both enabling and observing Timothy's leadership, his teaching, his ministry. In other words, if Timothy is going to be a faithful teacher, a useful teacher, he's going to do this by not just being Jesus-focused, but Jesus-infused. Timothy is going to live for and through the master. If he is, 
and the church that he leads to, then all the other pieces here that follow will fall into place. How much does just seeing that this morning help us? Last week, Pastor Paul talked about the inadequacy we often feel when sharing the gospel, when talking about the gospel. But here, again, we are reminded that one way we overcome those feelings of inadequacy is seeing that we work not just for God, but we work through God. He will empower the ministry, the things that he has called us to do. What a tremendous relief. As a useful vessel, Timothy must instruct these people then towards God and not to quarrel about words. This does not mean that Timothy will never disagree or push back on false teaching. It's not going to say like, well, you said never to quarrel about words, so I'm never going to push back or disagree when somebody promotes a false uh, doctrine. Debate and decision regarding the matters of the faith uh, and practice have always been unavoidable in the life of the church. Paul is not telling Timothy, don't ever talk, don't ever correct, don't ever rebuke. And in fact, we would see elsewhere in this book alone that he has been called to do that. What he is talking about, though, is there are times when these debates and discussions not only have no value, but can ruin those who are involved. So Paul is telling Timothy that if in someone's passion for God, or perhaps even poor judgment, they've moved away from meditation on God's word into division and quarreling, it is Timothy's job to stop this. We can sympathize with Timothy and the struggle that is here. We want to be people who hold tightly to the truth, who preach the truth, who defend the truth. But we should ask ourselves, is the way that we are seeking or communicating that truth leading to unity in Jesus, or is it leading to division in our lives? Is the people that we are listening to, are they leading people towards a greater love of Christ, a greater love of his church, unity in the body, or is their teaching leading to division? Timothy must be certain that as he deals with false teachers, which he's clearly called to do throughout 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and beyond, the way he does it is important. His instruction should not be quarrelsome about words, harmful to those that are hearing. But Paul continues, Timothy must also be a worker approved by God. How easy for it is, is it for us to seek out man's approval? But when we want man's approval, we are tempted to engage in ways that will show us worthy in the sight of man. To quarrel about words is to also conduct ourselves in a way that seeks not to advance Christ, but to advance our own agenda or our own personal prestige or to convince others to follow in our path. It seems that those that Timothy is engaging with here uh, are presenting themselves as smart or slick in some way. They have a secret or better truth because of their superior knowledge. And so Timothy has a great temptation to prove himself on their level, to go and engage in this quarrelsome debate about words rather than just simply preach the truth of Christ, to seek man's approval and to use that which will lead himself to being have some type of renown or respect in the community, simply to teach for man rather than God. But rather than engage in quarrel, Paul says, Timothy, you must present yourself as one approved by God, a worker who is not ashamed. So whether or not these other teachers or individuals that are all around Timothy think highly of Timothy does not matter. 
Timothy has no need to be ashamed. If God approves of him, who cares what everyone else thinks? Paul says, Timothy, you might suffer shame and humiliation from people for the simple gospel that we preach. So did I. So did Christ. Don't live for the approval of man. Present yourself as one approved by God. One who lives for Jesus should simply find their approval in Jesus. This helps us to bear with difficult family members, difficult seasons in marriage or even with children, coworkers, bosses. What God thinks of us is infinitely more significant than what any person or any group thinks of us. So how might Timothy live for God's approval and not man's? By rightly handling the word of truth. The word of truth is that which is associated with God, the written words that have been handed down by God through men to his people. And just as there is a temptation to engage in debate and quarreling that seeks only to show Timothy's skill and knowledge, so there's also a temptation for him to teach in a way that seeks man's approval rather than God's. Later in this, cha- in this book, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, Paul's going to warn Timothy about those hearers who seek only to pursue what their itching ears want to hear. But Timothy, in his preaching, should remember that just as he has reminded these people before God, he's also preaching and teaching before God. His audience is not the people that are there. His audience is his master, his savior, the Lord Jesus. And so the one he works to please are not those in his church, but God. And this means he must teach the truth without hesitation or reservation. He is to be a worker who rightly handles the word of truth. Now the image that Paul is painting here when he talks about handling this word of truth, he's not talking about exegetical techniques, exactness. So easy for is, it for is it for us to read this and say, well, he's telling Timothy, study and get into the deep understanding of God's word. That's elsewhere in scripture. That's a good godly thing. But what Paul is painting here, the picture when he tells Timothy to rightly handle the word of truth, he's giving him a picture of a worker who paves a straight road, a farmer who makes a straight plow for his people uh, and for his crops. This is a hard and laborious work that is not often appreciated. When was the last time you were driving on I-8 to the beautiful beaches of San Diego when you thought to yourself, man, what wonderful hard work people must have done to build this road as you hit all those bumps, Uh, right? No, we don't think of those simple things. We take them for granted. This type of work is unappreciated, hard, but it's deliberate work, and it's what Timothy is called to do. He must simply pave straight paths so that the people are not tempted to swerve this way or that, but to move forward towards the master. Timothy must not be ashamed of the message he preaches, but work hard and teach faithfully the things of God that those who hear might be saved and might be sanctified. This type of attitude is much different than those that are around him. So as Paul continues in 2 Timothy to put people by name. It's one of the most amusing things as I read the book of 2 Timothy is this is Paul's last book and all the other books, you know, you 
they're saying, you know the, that one that's around you, but he never says the people by name. In 2 Timothy, Paul's just like, that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy. Uh, and I feel bad sometimes, right? Who are these people? Nobody would know who Hymenaeus is if it wasn't for Paul labeling him here in the book that's going to be the most popular book and read by more people throughout history. But who are these people? Paul says there's these two among you, Hymenaeus and Philetus. This is, to make matters worse, round two for Hymenaeus. If you go to 1 Timothy, uh, the very first chapter, chapter 1, verse 20, who is this guy? He's the guy that Paul handed over to Satan. Right? So who is in jeopardy? Who is Hymenaeus? He is the one who has been handed over to Satan and is like gangrene. What a way to be remembered in history. Uh, but what do these men do? Why is Paul singling them out? Rather than make straight paths, they have swerved, and as they have swerved, those that have followed and listened to them have swerved as well. Their teaching seems to have both the appearance of godliness and some type of fancy polish or rhetoric to it, uh, so it's appealing to those that listens. But Paul is making something very clear. When this kind of teaching happens, when somebody begins to deviate from the truth, it will destroy that individual and it will destroy the church as it spreads like gangrene quickly and with deadliness. And so the right teaching that Paul is called to do here must avoid this kind of godless chatter that these men are engaging in. Now this is not Paul telling Timothy, don't talk about the weather or local news or how the Phoenix Suns are the greatest team in the history of the NBA. No, when he says irreverent babble or godless chatter, he is saying, avoid those discussions that attribute to God things that are not from God. These two men appear to have done this as a means of gaining increased understanding, spirituality, or even prestige in their circles regarding the resurrection. We don't know what authority uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus are arguing from or what they are exactly teaching, but Paul says they have taught that the resurrection has already come. They are operating like Satan in the opening pages of Scripture when he goes to Eve and he says, did God really say? They have tempted those who are listening to them into some type of alternate gospel. Now, they are not talking about the resurrection of Jesus here. Paul has already affirmed his belief in this chapter alone that Jesus has risen from the dead. So the false teaching that they are teaching isn't Jesus' resurrection already happened. It has to do with believers and a false view of what it means to be resurrectioned, uh, resurrected. It's probably a variation of an ancient heresy called Gnosticism that taught that the real world, uh, matter world, the physical body, uh, was universally bad and corrupt, and we needed to free ourselves from that so that the spirit might uh, be free to engage God. Now, this could cause somebody to take extreme measures, such as denying themselves food and taking care of their physical body, or it could lead into those that said, this physical body doesn't matter, so I will do anything I want with it and engage in all, type, all types of misdeeds because the physical world is being wiped away. It doesn't matter. Christ has resurrected my heart. Uh, this view has caused those who have heard it, who have followed it, uh, to be unsettled. What if I told you today that this world was as good as it gets? Right? What if I said, guys, the physical body, this is as good as we're ever going to be. 
this world is as good as it will ever be. We need to free ourselves from it. This physical world has no hope. It would cause many of us to be depressed. It would cause many of us to lack hope in Christ or in the world to come. Part of what Paul has previously encouraged Timothy with in this book, a letter alone, is that, Timothy, there is greater things to come still. Hope is around the corner because we are going to glory with Jesus. But these men and their teaching about the resurrection regarding Christians has caused those who hear it uh, to be unsettled. But Paul is going to tell Timothy what in verse uh, 19 here. God's firm foundation still stands. Even as these people are unsettled, Timothy, rest and teach in the truth that God has this situation under control. He knows those who are his. And his people have standing orders then to turn away from wickedness such as this false teaching. Timothy then can confidently minister in the light of God's good oversight. Even in the face of resurrection denial and soul destruction, God's reign is not destabilized. His firm foundation stands. These men, their teaching will fail. Why? Because it is not from God. So then we arrive at verse 20 and 21. Let me read it for us. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Paul uses a metaphor as he's instructing Timothy here of a large house, and it's meant to be an encouragement. He says, in this large house, Timothy, there are vessels of many different kinds. There's those that are made from costly materials like gold and silver. They serve high purposes in the home. And there are elsewhere in those homes vessels made of ordinary materials that are used for dishonorable use. We might today picture in our homes a nice set of dinnerware, uh, china or fancy plates and bowls and servingware that you bring out for parties and when you have guests into your house compared to trash cans and toilets. All of them serve a purpose in the house, some for honorable use to bless those that come, some to take care of the things that we don't want in our life. In a house, there's many different vessels. But it begs us to ask, what is the purpose of using this metaphor? Why is Paul using it? And it appears that he's using it to describe the church. There are those, Paul is saying, in the church, in, uh, in and around you, Timothy, like Hymenaeus and Philetus, who are vessels for dishonorable use. They are trash cans and toilets meant to get rid of bad things. God will use them but he will not use them in ways that lead to their glory and are going to cause the church to flourish. So as a means of encouragement to Timothy, Paul reminds Timothy about the way God works. Those that have been infected by this bad teaching, they might yet still cleanse themselves, literally rid themselves of this bad teaching and doctrine and go from being trash cans to being vessels for honorable use. Paul is telling Timothy if you want to teach and engage like these men teach, if you want to seek the approval of man like they do, and you want to engage in endless speculation, you will show yourself to be a vessel for dishonorable use. But if you want to be useful to the master, if you want to be set apart as holy, if you want to be ready to do the good work of God, you must cleanse yourself from this type of teaching. 
It's important to note here that Paul does not seem to be making a case for cleansing in the sense of salvation. When we say, what can wipe away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul is not talking about moving from opposition to God, rebellion against God, to right standing with God. What Paul is talking about when he says cleanse yourself is this idea of the Christian life being full of already but not yet. Right? Already you have been raised from the dead, you have new life, new birth, we affirm this as Christians, but not yet has the bodily resurrection happened where we received glorified bodies free of decay and live in glory with God forever. Already you have been made positionally pure by the blood of Jesus. If you have been saved, if Christ has set his love on you and regenerated your heart, you are positionally pure before God forever. But there is also a sense that even though positionally in God's sight, I'm righteous, I'm holy, we understand as we look at our own lives day after day that we don't have victory over every kind of sin yet. Already, positionally pure, Christ's righteousness imputed on us, not yet freedom from sin in our life. We labor and work our whole life that we might increase in purity and in cleansliness before God. Paul does not want Timothy to be dragged into a sub-biblical way of teaching or thinking. Don't be like these other guys who have shipwrecked their faith and who are upsetting others. Stick to the simple and powerful truth of God's word, Timothy. You will be useful to the master. Cleanse yourself by living according to the commands of God in the word of God. Paul's going to finish by showing what this cleansing looks like. How will Timothy be this godly worker? Well, he goes on to say, verse 22, flee from the evil desires of youth. Now, desires in the Apostle Paul's writings is almost always a way that he describes negative behaviors or impulses. Galatians 5, 16 to 21 mentions the desires of the flesh, such as sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, and the list goes on. So when Paul says, flee from the evil desires of your youth, Timothy, he is talking about fleeing uh, and individuals who are led not by God, but by their passions. Flee from those youthful passions when you were a young man and every little impulse caused you to jump, right? You, when you're 15 years old, everything seems like a good idea. Uh, and then you get a little bit older and you start to think, that's not a great idea. Uh, I could really get hurt if I do that. That might cause me some pain. There's going to be consequences if I do that. Uh, but the impulses when you're young are strong. And so Paul is telling Timothy, be free from those youthful impulses, those desires towards things that will gratify yourself and live for yourself. Instead, live for God. Flee from sin. Run towards God. The thought is straightforward even if it's difficult to do. And in here, we are familiar and have a picture painted of another young man who did this. 
Right? We talked about this at the beginning of uh, 2 Timothy here. Young man named Joseph. If you're not familiar with scripture, it's the tail end of the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph. And in the midst of this story, he has this uh, moment where a woman comes before him and demands for him to come to her room with him. She is attractive. She's a lady of high standing, and it seems like would have an ability to make Joseph's life much better. But what does Joseph do? He turns and bolts. He runs away. This is the picture that Paul is painting towards Timothy. Flee. Run away from these passions, these pursuits that lead to worldly pleasure. And instead, run towards God. If you're a young person here today and you're dating, and you're asking yourself a question like, well, how far is too far? You are not fleeing you are getting dangerously close and inviting disaster into your life. If you ask yourself, as you go about your week, how much food until I'm a glutton, right? This question is not a question that you're asking, God, how can I flee from the passions that rage inside of me? It's saying, how much until I've really made you mad, God, right? This is a question that shows we're not fleeing, we could say the same thing about alcohol. How much alcohol until I'm a drunk, right? What is that line, God? I want to know how much I can do rather than can I just flee? How many hours until I'm a workaholic and have neglected my family? We could go on and on and on here. But here are these passions that rage inside of us that ask us, if you do this, if you follow this, then you will have satisfaction. Live for yourself but Paul is saying, Timothy, flee from these things. Run away from them and run towards God. Don't live to satisfy yourself. Live to satisfy God. The useful vessel does not pursue personal satisfaction. The useful vessel pursues Christ. He doesn't waste time engaging in foolish controversies. He flees from them. He does not work to satisfy himself or bring himself glory and honor. He seeks to satisfy Christ and bring glory and honor to God. He strengthens those that he teaches rather than unsettling them. Look at the characteristics listed here for Timothy. He must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Where else do we see these characteristics? Galatians 5, the opposite of those desires of the flesh are the fruit of the Spirit. What does a useful vessel live like? They live according to the fruit of the Spirit. They live that God might be glorified as he grants even the toilets among them repentance. And so he says to Timothy, preach, live in such a way that God's truth is born on people, that they might hear it, and that God might work and use your life, your words, to bring these people into repentance, that they might escape the snare of Satan that they find themselves in. If we this morning are to be useful vessels, we should read this and say, our lives should imitate the master. The one who is supremely patient, the one who has endured the ultimate suffering, the one who corrected his opponents not with vindication but with a firm gentleness that they might come to salvation. Might we be such vessels as we live for God. Let us pray that the pursuit of our life would always be Christ, 
that we might be more and more conformed to his image and therefore useful for the work of the master. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that your work is not completed in us. Lord, we know that we need to gain greater and greater mastery over those youthful passions. Lord, help us to be people who pursue you first and foremost, who have a singular focus in our life to live for you and through you. Lord, we desire to be useful vessels. We desire for our church to be a church full of people, not of division and quarreling, but full of people who seek to edify and encourage and push each other forward towards Christ. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be patient and gentle. Help us to be people who exhibit the fruits of the Spirit as we live our lives. Help us to patiently endure wrong when it's uh, brought against us. And help us to correct those, not with selfish motives or ambitions, but with gentleness, that those that we help, those that we correct, that those that we disciple might come to love you, know you, and rest in you. Father, do this for us as your people, we pray. Amen.